0: Please uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 26 to 28. And we're going to read chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, and then chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. As you're turning there, uh, on my table this evening, there was a young lady who said that she has never seen as many blokes serve at lunchtime today. (laughs) Getting up, getting the food, bringing it back, clearing the tables. So at least the men are listening to the talks. I think they've earned the right for a late night walk around the lake. Just the blokes. Just the blokes. (laughs) uh. Okay. Um, Tonight's talk is called Shameless Sexuality male and female, shameless sexuality. Uh, Let's hear God's word, Uh, chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. And chapter 2, verse 23. Father God, our help is in you, the maker of heaven and earth, and so we pray that you would come now and by your Holy Spirit illuminate your word and our minds. We pray that you would conform our will, that you would stir our affections, and that you would change our nature into the image of your glorious Son, in whose name we pray, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised, world without end. Amen. <clears throat> I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that in the last few years we've seen a seismic shift in Western culture in relation to the issues of gender and sexuality. What was once a clear distinction between male and female genders, recognised by every civilization since the beginning of time, is now blurred and distorted. This is seen from Facebook, offering limitless options to describe your gender in your profile, to families raising their children gender-neutral, to countries like Sweden creating a new word to refer to a third category of people in society who are neither male nor female, to the Eurovision Song Contest in 2014 where an Austrian man dressed as a woman won the contest, to Bruce Jenner, stepfather of the Kardashians. Having hormone replacement therapy and operations to make him look like a woman, in 2015 he appeared on the front cover of Vanity Fair as Caitlyn Jenner. You just need to switch on the TV or go on the internet, and you can see that we live in a world of gender confusion. And it's not just a confusion out there in the world, or in the world wide web, it's also a confusion that is creeping in to the church. We live in a fog of gender confusion. There's also the confusion over sexuality. Confusion over sexuality You just need to look at something like the Pride March in Belfast or the Mardi Gras festivals in various world cities. Uh, More recently, the confusion has expressed itself in the legislation of same-sex marriage in various Western countries and then most recently in the Republic of Ireland in 2017. So we live in a fog of gender confusion and we live in a fog of sexuality confusion. And the question is, how are we to respond as Christians? What are we to do about it? Well, one approach is what I call the ghetto or ostrich approach. This is where the church retreats into the ghetto, buries its head in the sand like an ostrich, and pretends that none of this is happening. And if we do acknowledge it's happening, well, at least it's happening out there, In the world and not in here in the church, and so we don't really need to deal with it. The only problem with that approach is that the Bible does deal with it and quite directly. God gave laws to his people about perverting their gender or sexuality precisely because he knew that the problem was not just out there, but it was in here in our hearts. We're all prone to distortions of our gender and sexuality. Out of the heart, said Jesus, flows sexual immorality. The other approach is what I call the go with the flow approach. This is where the church decides that actually the Bible is out of touch with the times and so we need to get with the times. An example of this is the Church of Scotland concluded in its recent decision to allow the ordination of practicing homosexuals that the Bible does actually speak against homosexuality. But the Bible is out of touch with our culture and so we need as the church to get in touch with where our culture is. The problem with this approach is that God has always called his people to win the world by being different from the world. A better approach is what I call the lighthouse approach. So not the ghetto ostrich approach and not the go with the flow approach but third the lighthouse approach. The church's response is to be like a lighthouse fixed on a rock providing light and guidance to ships at sea in the darkness and the fog. We're not to go with the flow We are to stand, but we're not to stand in a ghetto, hidden. We are to stand in the public square, shining the light of God's word onto these issues. Jesus said that his church was to be set uh, as a city on a hill, shining as a bright light. The church is to speak publicly, not privately, on this issue. And in Genesis 1 and 2, God gives us his public Perspective on the issue of gender and sexuality. And my prayer for this evening is that the Spirit of God would shine the light of God's word into the darkness and blow away uh, the fog of confusion. Because Genesis 1 and 2 gives us four clear perspectives to consider in the fog of confusion over gender and sexuality. So, four. Perspectives, but first two qualifications. First, on terminology. Tonight I'm going to refer to different kinds of sexualities. Uh, Heterosexuality refers to male and female relations. Homosexuality refers to male male relations or female female relations. Bisexuality is one person who is attracted to both male and female. Transsexuality. It's where a person changes their gender from one gender to the other. Zoosexuality, historically known as bestiality, is where a person has relations with an animal. Now, I'm aware that such terminology might be uncomfortable for some, and I want to acknowledge that. And I want to say that there is a generation of young pastors who I think lack propriety and decorum when it comes to speaking about these issues. Uh, The Bible never speaks loosely or provocatively or jokingly about uh, sexuality. It never flaunts it, um, and neither should we. But equally so, the Bible does speak about every one of those sexualities. You just need to read Leviticus chapter 18 and 20, and you'll see that the the Bible covers all of them. So whilst we must avoid loose or provocative talk about these realities, equally so we must avoid a Victorian prudishness that seeks to be more holy than Jesus or the Bible. So that's the first qualification. The Bible speaks openly about sexuality but with decorum and propriety. The second qualification is a pastoral one and that is that I'm aware in a gathering this size that there will be people who have all different kinds of sexual histories. Uh, every one of us in this room has a sexual history from the thought world of our mind all the way through to perhaps sex outside marriage and I just want to acknowledge that that there is going to be a wide variety of people who have expressed their sexuality differently uh, in this room and due to time I'm not going to be able to deal with every aspect of that in a practical way, like what do you do if you're confused with your gender? Uh, Is same-sex attraction different to homosexual practice in a moral sense? Uh, Should a Christian attend a same-sex wedding uh, of a family member or a friend? Uh, Perhaps these are questions you might want to put in uh, the Q&A box. In fact, I don't actually know I've just encouraged you to put those (laughs) in the Q&A box. I will be leaving straight after the talk tomorrow morning, so I'll leave it to those leading the weekend. Uh, Some books that may be helpful, Kevin DeYoung's written a book, What Does the Bible Teach About Homosexuality? I think it's an excellent book. I think he is a little bit weak on same-sex attraction at the end of the book in an appendix, but nevertheless, it's very good. And the other book that is, in my view, second to none is by a guy called Douglas Wilson called Same-Sex Mirage. Same-Sex Mirage. It is the single best treatment on this confusion of sexuality. So that's a bit of reading for those who want to do more reading. But let's now look at these four perspectives from God's Word. Number one, before there was gender and sexuality there was God. Before there was gender and sexuality, there was God. Genesis one verse one gives us this very simple fact. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that fact precedes Genesis one twenty seven. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. In the beginning, before there was sexuality and gender, there was God. Now, the point is so obvious you think it doesn't really need telling. And yet, this is the foundation to the whole discussion. Because the whole discussion regarding gender and sexuality is at root a question of authority who has the authority to decide someone's gender? Who has the authority to say this sexuality is okay, that sexuality is not okay? Facebook recently, a few years ago, changed its gender policy from 58 genders. It used to have 58 genders you could choose from on Facebook to allowing any description of gender. Why did they change? Because people started asking Facebook, who gave you the authority that there are only 58 genders? Someone was clearly saying, I've got one gender that's not in the 58," And Facebook decided, yeah, okay, who made us the gender police of the Western world? Who gave us the authority? So yeah, over to you. And they gave the individual the authority. Uh, That's the issue here. Uh, Each person was wanting the autonomy to decide for themselves what gender they would like to be. The same could be said about the issue of sexuality. At root, it's a question of authority. Who has the authority to decide someone's sexuality? We're told not parents, not government, and certainly not the church. Each person has the authority to decide for themselves what sexual orientation they have. And this is where Genesis 1.1 comes into this discussion Because before there was gender and sexuality, there was God. This is the foundational perspective that we Christians must affirm in this debate over gender and sexuality. Before there was gender and sexuality, there was God. In the beginning, God. That is the foundational argument that we must begin with. God was there before the beginning... Because he has always been. God was and is and is to come. He is eternal. He pre-existed before all things because he has never not existed. And as the eternal pre-existing God who stands before all things, he creates the reality of all things and then defines and names the reality of all things. We see that in the creation week. God creates reality, then he defines reality. He makes reality, then he names reality. Genesis, uh, day one, God creates light and dark. He distinguishes between them. Then God calls the light day and the darkness he calls night. Day three, God separates water and land, and then he calls the water seas and the dry dry ground he calls land. Nothing in this world exists without God, and nothing in this world receives its definition or name outside of God. And it's the same when it comes to gender and sexuality. God created man in two genders, and then he called them male and female. God created gender and sexuality, and then he defined gender and sexuality. And he defines them because he was before them. This is why Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 is the most offensive verse in the whole Bible. Okay? It's not the verse about homosexuality being an abomination. It's Genesis 1 verse 1 because the verse tells us that God is the ultimate authority on any issue. Because he was before all things, he created all things, and therefore he names and defines all things, including gender and sexuality. Before there was gender and sexuality, there was God. Which means that any attempt on our part to recreate what God has already created, or to rename what God has already named, or to redefine what God has already defined, is not called freedom. It is called rebellion. It's called trying to be God when we are not God. The whole discussion regarding gender and sexuality is at root a question of authority. It's a question of who gets to be God. The whole debate of gender and sexuality can be summed up in four words. Did God really say... Genesis 3 verse uh, verse 1, did God really say, that's what the serpent says to Eve and that is what our culture is saying to us, did God really say just two genders, male and female, did God really say only heterosexuality? Um, And our society says that the authority to name and define gender and sexuality resides in personal choice or cultural convention or a majority vote in a referendum or in a government think tank. But the Bible says that the authority to name and define gender and sexuality resides in the God who is, who was, and is to come. So, before there was gender and sexuality, there was God, which means He is the one who has the right to define and name this reality. Which brings us to our second perspective on gender and sexuality. Number one, before there was gender or sexuality, there was God. Number two, heterosexuality is God's good idea. Heterosexuality is God's good idea. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice how God starts speaking in verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us. God is here having a discussion within himself. God is one, but he is also three persons. And God decides here to discuss within himself How to make mankind in our image, after our likeness, and then later on, male and female. Opposite but complementary. This creation of mankind as male and female continues the creation of complementary couplets in chapter 1. Just think about what we've learned so far. God has already made light and dark, day and night, sea and land, sun and moon, fish and birds, and now he makes man and woman, male and female. So it continues the complementary couplets. But different to these other couplets uh, that God makes, here God pauses to discuss within himself the creation of man. This shows some reflection, some contemplation on God's part. It shows ultimately that the creation of man as male and female is God's idea. It's not the accident of evolution or the convention of culture. It's God's idea to create male and female. Let us make man in our image uh, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is made more plain in chapter 2 where God makes the woman Notice how, in verse 18, the idea for the man to have a partner is God's. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Notice also that it is God who puts Adam to a deep sleep. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and while he slept he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And notice then it is God who creates the woman and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. It's God's decision to make a she not a he from the side of Adam. And notice then that it is God who brings the woman to the man and he brought her to the man. And when the man sees her, he acknowledges that she is equal but different, bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. And precisely because they are equal but different, they can come together as one flesh. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. In other words, God brings the man and the woman together uh, like two magnets And in order for the magnets to come together, both need to be magnets. Both have to have the quality of a magnet. But the one has to give off a positive field and the other a negative field if they are going to come together. You know, when you put two magnets together, two positives, what do they do? They repel each other. When you put two negatives together, they repel each other. But a positive and a negative come together And it's the same with male and female. God makes the man and the woman equal but different in order that they might come together as one flesh. Sexual attraction between male and female is God's idea. He's the active one in chapter 2, creating the woman, bringing her to the man. But it's more than God's idea. It's God's good idea. Heterosexuality is God's good idea. Just flick back to chapter 1, verse 31. This is at the end of the sixth day, after God has made the woman and brought her to the man. And God says, and the text says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Here is God's assessment of the couplets throughout chapter 1 and this couple Adam and Eve male and female are at the head at the climax of those couplets and God says that it was very good male and female coming together as one flesh in God's eyes is brilliant it's class right that's what the Hebrew is trying to say okay that's the northern that's the NIV version the northern Irish version okay it's It's fantastic. It's very good. It's why God announces his benediction over them. Verse 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. Male and female coming together as one flesh receive the benediction of God. His blessing. Heterosexuality is God's good idea. Which means that any other kind of sexuality is man's bad idea, over which there can be no benediction or word of blessing. Homosexuality, bisexuality, transsexuality, zoosexuality, bestiality are all bad ideas. And they are bad ideas because they distort God's good idea. They pervert his good order. Now, this is a really key point in our discussion over gender and sexuality. There is only one good idea when it comes to gender and sexuality, and that one good idea is heterosexuality. There is only one good, natural, created reality when it comes to gender and sexuality, and that is heterosexuality. All other sexualities are unnatural sexualities. They are distortions, corruptions, perversions of the one good natural sexuality that God has stitched into the order of creation. All right, let me give you an illustration and then explain what I mean. Uh, sometimes uh, Ben and I play uh, Play-Doh, uh, more for me than him, but... <laughs> We play Play-Doh sometimes. And so I bring a ball of Play-Doh under the table and I make a little person out of that Play-Doh. And then I hand that little Play-Doh man to Ben. Now he's got two options with Play-Doh man. He can respect the Play-Doh man I've given him and play with him as he is. Or he can change him. And that's often what he does. He pulls off a leg, he lengthens an arm, he presses his finger into Play-Doh man's forehead. Okay? Now what has Ben done? He has distorted the created Play-Doh man I gave him. He didn't bring his own Play-Doh ball onto the table to create his own new Play-Doh man besides my Play-Doh man. No, there was only one ball of Play-Doh on the table. Ben only had one Play-Doh man to play with, the one I gave him but then he distorted it. And it's the same when it comes to gender and sexuality. There is only one created sexuality. Uh, Two created genders, male and female, and one sexuality, heterosexuality. We can either accept it, respect it, embrace it, or we can distort it, corrupt it, and pervert it. Now this is very different to the story of sexuality that the world gives us. The world wants to say to us, there are many balls of sexuality on the table. All equal, all moldable into whatever sexuality you would like. Heterosexuality, homosexuality, bisexuality, transsexuality, zoosexuality. The world says that these sexualities are just varieties within the natural order of human beings. They're just variants within a species, as the theory of evolution teaches. But the Bible teaches that sin is a perversion of what is, not a variety within what is. Sin is a perversion of what is, not a variety within what is. Let me tease that out a bit. Whereas a heterosexual person loves a different self, a homosexual person loves the same self by duplicating the self. It's what homo means, same. Whereas a heterosexual person is content to want to love one other different self, a bisexual person loves two other selves a different self, and a duplicated self. Whereas a heterosexual person is content with him or herself, a transsexual person is discontent with him or herself and so tries to change themself. Whereas a heterosexual person loves an equal self, the zoosexual person, bestiality, loves an unequal self, and so defiles the self. In every case, these sexualities uh, make unnatural what God made natural. In every case, they distort, corrupt, or pervert God's good natural order because there is only one ball of sexuality on the table. And as God's creatures, we either accept, embrace it, or we distort or corrupt it. So, to summarize this second point, heterosexuality is God's good idea, and every other kind of sexuality is man's bad idea. It is a distortion of what God made to be good and holy. So, we've seen that before there was gender and sexuality, there was God. Then we've seen that heterosexuality is God's good idea. And then third, marriage is for Heterosexuality, marriage is for heterosexuality. Genesis chapter two verse twenty-four. Now, notice what I've said. I didn't say heterosexuality is for marriage. Okay, which is true. The only appropriate expression of heterosexual relations is in marriage. In that sense, heterosexuality is for marriage. But Genesis two verse twenty-four teaches us that marriage is for heterosexuality. Uh, Look at verse 23 and 24. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Precisely because Adam is presented with Eve, Precisely because he has met his complementary match, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, a marriage takes place. What I mean is that God first made nature and then he made a law to fit that nature. Verse 23 is the nature that he makes, a man and a woman, bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. And then verse 24 is this like side comment about a law, a marriage law that conforms to the, nat- to the nature, the natural order. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. As Richard Baxter put it, God made men and then he gave them laws. God made men and then he gave them laws. First nature, then law. That is special revelation from God conforming to the nature that he has made. Now, we see this throughout Genesis 1 and 2. God first creates, then he commands what he has created. First nature, then law. This is perhaps best illustrated with the Sabbath. In Genesis 1, God makes man on day 6. And then in chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, he sanctifies the seventh day as a Sabbath. The Sabbath is made because of the nature of man is such that he will need a rest. The law of Sabbath conforms to the nature of man. Man is not made to conform to the Sabbath because the Sabbath is not some arbitrary code, some pre-existing law before man was made to which man must conform. Rather, as Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Think about what Jesus was saying. Law conforms to nature. Nature does not conform to law. And it's the same with marriage. First God creates man, Genesis two seven, then he creates woman, Genesis two eighteen to twenty three, and then he commands marriage, Genesis two twenty four. Note the order. It's very important. First nature, male and female, then law, marriage. Marriage is only spoken of after God is made male and female. In other words, marriage was made for man, not man for marriage. And this is a really key thing to grasp, because I think we tend to think of God's laws as abstract, arbitrary, restrictive rules, like codes that pre-exist and are just out there to which we must conform. You know, like the sign in the park that you see that says no ball games. And even when you don't have a ball, you start to feel guilty about it. Okay? There's that just abstract law. No ball games. Okay? I don't even have a ball. Okay? Yet you're asking me to conform to this abstract law. That's not how God's law is presented in the Bible. God's laws are good. They are holy. They are wholesome. And they are good, holy, and wholesome. Why? Why? Because God first made man and then he made laws to conform to our natures. Okay, which means that when God made laws, he did so for our own personal and social well-being. God's law conforms to who we are. Now, as a father, I have certain rules for Ben in the home. And if I'm a good father, my rules will take into account who he is. He's a boy, not a girl what age he is, how much he can understand, what is good for him, what is dangerous for him. And if I love Ben, as I do, I try to set the rules according to his nature because I'm a father who loves him and I want him to flourish and grow into a lovely young Christian man. And so my laws, my rules conform to his nature. And that's what God does with marriage. He conforms marriage to our natures because our natures are male and female, heterosexual in orientation. And marriage takes place because man meets woman, male meets female, and together they become one flesh. Heterosexuals fit together by nature and marriage conforms to that natural fitness. Marriage is for heterosexuality. For Heterosexual relations which means that marriage is not for any other kind of sexuality because it can't conform to different kinds of sexualities. Let me give you some examples. The reason marriage cannot conform to a homosexual union is because there can be no one-flesh union. Homosexuals cannot consummate in one-flesh union. Two men cannot consummate, two women cannot consummate a marriage, a a sexual union. And because they don't naturally fit together, it's why they can't marry together. Marriage can't conform to a bisexual union because there are three parties involved, not two. Marriage can't conform to zoo sexuality because there are not two equal parties involved. The only thing that marriage can conform to is heterosexuality, where you have two equal but different parties that naturally come together as one flesh. Uh, God made water to run downhill, not uphill. Male and female go together naturally. Male and male do not go together naturally. Female and female do not go together naturally. Now, I realize that we live in a world that says marriage does conform to homosexual relations because after all, it's all about love, isn't it? Uh, As the Supreme Court in America decided and as the British and Irish governments have decided, marriage, they say, can conform to homosexual relations. But when those uh, bills were passed in the Supreme Court and the British and Irish governments passed same-sex legislation. I was reminded of the story of Abraham Lincoln, the American president, in a public debate. Uh, While he was debating an opponent, uh, he turned to a man in the audience and asked him a question to make his point to his opponent. He said, sir, if we call a sheep's tail a leg, how many legs does the sheep have? And the man looked at him and said, five. And Abraham Lincoln replied, No, sir, four. Just because you call a tail a leg doesn't mean it is. A sheep only has four legs, no matter what you call its tail. And it's the same with same-sex marriage. Just because people and governments call a same-sex couple making vows to each other a marriage, just because they give it a certificate and stamp it into law, doesn't mean it's a marriage it's a mirage not a marriage it's a figment of their imagination because it does not conform to the reality that God has established in this world and here we're back to the very first point before there was gender and sexuality there was God and only God says what marriage is and what God says marriage is is what marriage is no matter what anyone else calls it. Homosexual marriage is a figment of people's imagination, even if the government gives them a certificate for it. This is another reason why marriage can't conform to homosexuality. Or here's another reason, is because marriage itself is a picture of Christ and the church. And Christ, as I said earlier, does not die for another Christ. The church does not submit to another church. Christ died for his bride. The church and his bride submits to him. And so that's our third point. Marriage is for heterosexuality. Number four. Heterosexuality in marriage is shameless. Heterosexuality in marriage is shameless. Uh, Verse 25 of chapter 2. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. When God's good idea is kept, when the good order of nature is followed, look at what happens. Verse 25, two people can enjoy being naked together and feel no shame. Now we human beings are at our most vulnerable when we're naked. uh, But here are Adam and Eve before the fall, naked with each other, enjoying each other and feeling no shame afterwards. Why? Because heterosexuality in marriage is shameless. There's nothing to hide and everything to give, because in heterosexual relations, in a covenant bond, a person has met their perfect match. So what's there to hide? And precisely because heterosexual, say heterosexuality in marriage is shameless, Any sexuality outside of marriage, including heterosexual relations outside of marriage, is shameful. You only need to scratch a little below the surface and you'll see that when sexuality is expressed outside of marriage, (coughs) there is deep, deep shame. Russell Brand, the comedian, once commenting on porn, spoke of how icebergs of filth float through every house on Wi-Fi. Icebergs of filth. Notice what Russell Brand calls porn. Filth. And then he confesses that after watching porn, he never feels good about it. And he says that he feels dirty after watching it. What is he expressing? Shame. Shame he's expressing the shame of watching something he should never have watched. Girls in the adult industry say that after a day's work, they just want to go home, have a shower, get into bed, curl up in the fetal position, and go to sleep. Most of them who have boyfriends never sleep with their boyfriends because they're too ashamed. What are people feeling when they express sexuality outside of marriage, they feel shame. I once had a married man confess to me that he had had a homosexual affair with someone he had met on the internet and he spoke of how dirty he felt afterwards and how after it he just wanted to go and have a shower. What was he feeling? Shame. Bisexuals, transsexuals, zoo sexuals. they also experience shame, deep shame. And brothers and sisters, this is where the gospel of Jesus Christ is so relevant. Because notice how all of these people express their experience after the act. Dirty, disgusting, filthy, in want of a shower. In one sentence, they want to be washed and they want to be covered. And that's exactly what Jesus offers, isn't it? A cleansing and a covering. It's why Jesus came to die for us sinners. Sinners of all sexuality stripes. Sinners of warts and all sexualities. As I said earlier, everyone in this room has a sexual history. From the lusts of our heart, to things we have done with other people, to the act of sex outside of marriage and Jesus came to die so that we might be washed and redressed in new clothes. This passage in Genesis 2:24 is picked up by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, a passage we've been looking at this weekend. But please turn with me again to that passage, Ephesians 5. Paul's point here is that human marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. And listen to what Paul says. Verse 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you see the language? Jesus died so as to wash his bride, which means that she was first dirty and filthy before he died for her. Come with me to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 9. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God and such were some of you but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God notice how uh, Paul speaks of this list of sins and then the very first thing he says after such were some of you but you were washed it's always struck me That Paul uses that word first. You were washed. There's the wonderful good news of Christianity. Jesus' blood cleanses us. But he doesn't stop there. Once he's cleansed us and justified us, he covers us. And then he starts to change us. The cleansing is the washing. The covering is the justification. And the changing is the sanctification. So no matter who you are here this evening, whatever you've done, with whomever you have done it, hear the gospel tonight. Jesus Christ has washed you. He has cleansed you and then covered you with his his righteousness. How can he do that? To cleanse and to cover? Because how did he hang on the cross? Naked. Naked and ashamed he died for sinners of all sexuality stripes he died for every lustful thought that we've ever had he died for every expression of sexuality outside the bond of marriage he was the perfect man he embraced his gender he expressed his sexuality perfectly Not once did he have a lustful thought of a woman he met. Not once did he express his sexuality outside the bonds of marriage wrong. He was the perfect one-woman man. And it's in him we have our forgiveness. And it's in him we are clothed with his righteousness. So brothers and sisters, do not wallow in your shame tonight but have confidence rejoice in the gospel and such were some of you but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the lord jesus christ and by the spirit of our god amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved wretches like us let us pray Father God, you are the God before whom all hearts are open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hidden. We pray that you would cleanse the thoughts, words, and actions of our lives in the area of our gender and sexuality. And that having been forgiven fully in Christ, having received his righteousness in our account, we pray that we would live lives that worthily magnify your holy name in the power and by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Christ's strong name. Amen.